Welcome to another edition of Exploring Mind and Body. As always, I'm your host, Drew Tadia. All right, thanks so much for being here for this edition. I always appreciate you tuning in to what we have going on on the show. Just before we jump into the show, a quick word from our sponsor, MAK Mystic Expressions. Now, this is a Himalayan salt company. They specialize in pink salt. Himalayan salt, if you will. <laughs> so this uh, they have all kinds of different pink Himalayan salt products. So salt grinders, salt shakers, salt cutting boards. They have a salt heating bag and salt lamps as well. So if you check out makmystics.com, you can find out all the things that they're doing and all the products they have to offer. So check them out at makmystics.com. Today, we have another guest coming on for you. This is Marion Nessel, who is a professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, Public Health, and a professor of sociology at the New York University. We're so pleased to have her on the show today. She's most noted for her book called Food Politics. We're talking about portion control. We touched on sugar, uh, the FDA and GMOs, and so much more. So sit back and enjoy. We got all that coming up. Uh this is Exploring Mind and Body. Naturally improve your lifestyle one show at a time with your host, Drew Tadia. Okay, welcome back to another edition of Exploring Mind and Body. You heard all about Marion Nestle in the intro, so without further ado, welcome to the show, Marion. I'm glad to be here. Why don't you give our listeners a chance to resonate with you a little bit, and maybe you could tell us about your background and how you got into what you're doing. Well, I'm a, I have a doctorate in molecular biology and started teaching nutrition when I'm on my first teaching job. Um, and I pretty soon figured out that if you want to know why people eat the way they do, you have to understand a lot about the politics of our food system. So that's how I got interested in it. I've been doing it for a long time now. And then, so what, what are you doing full time? I know there's a number of different things you're doing. Oh, I'm a professor at New York University. I do what all professors do, research, teaching, and public service. Um, and I've been doing that for a long time, too. Okay, so well, how did you get into the direct teaching of food? So first of all, you were interested in it yourself? Yeah, I like to eat. <laughs> I, I really enjoy food. I think it's one of life's greatest pleasures. Um, and I was at um, on my first teaching job at a small undergraduate college. I was given a nutrition course to teach. So that was how I got into that part of it. And that was about 40 years ago now. So you, you've been doing this a long time. A very long time. <laughs> so what was it about that first course that grabbed you and wanted you to continue or, or start a career path in nutrition? Well, I had about 50 students in that class, and they were very interested in nutrition. And I gave them an assignment uh, for the uh, for the course in which they needed to read some popular idea about nutrition and do the research on the scientific basis of that idea and then write a paper discussing that research and then talking about what its implications were for advice that you would give patients or for their own personal dietary habits and um, every single one of the paper, the 50 papers uh, they were all on different topics came to the same kind of conclusions that there really wasn't enough research to be able to come to a definitive conclusion all you could do would be to take the research and try to make some sense of it um, and try to act on what your understanding of it was 
But the studies themselves were done with too few subjects for too short a period of time. Um, and with and, and often very very poorly designed, and uh, and so that made it clear that unlike molecular biology, the research in nutrition was really really difficult to do, uh, because you were working with humans who didn't make very good subjects. You can't treat people the way you treat laboratory rats. Um, you can't lock them up and feed them something and then look and see what happens. <laughs> you have to do whatever studies you're doing in the context of people's daily lives. Um, and their lives are complicated by everything that they do as well as everything that they eat or drink. Um, and so the research is very intellectually challenging. And I, I got caught by that. That really fascinated me, that you were dealing with something that was extraordinarily difficult, very intellectually challenging, and dealing with people who eat several times a day and feel like they're experts on their own bodies and have a lot of understanding, sometimes misunderstanding, of what diet has to do with their health. I found all of that very interesting. And it's not black and white, it's all gray, and I kind of like the grays. <laughs> and it seems like there's a lot more gray than black and white. Uh, there is indeed. <laughs> so what is your favorite part? Do you have a favorite part to research or study or find more information about? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by the question. Um, I read a lot. Uh, I have uh, an enormous input of newsletters and information, and I uh, work very hard to keep up with what's going on. Uh, there is no one source. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of sources. We need to take a short commercial break. When we come back, we're going to jump into some more details about research and the things that you're going to share with us today. So stay right there. Exploring mind and body with True Form's True Tadia would not be possible without the help from the following sponsors. AG Foods in Didsbury, Health Street in the Cornerstone Shopping Center Olds, and Shoppers Drug Mart, working together to help build a healthier tomorrow. For more information on True Form Life, True Tadia, or to find out how you can become a sponsor, visit exploringmindandbody.com. All right, welcome back to Exploring Mind and Body. We have Marion Nessel on the line. And today we're talking about food politics. And we just got into Marion and her background, how she got into what she does. And now I want to go through some questions. And Marion, the first kind of question I want to ask you is, what do you feel that there is one specific issue around our diets, around the American diet, around, or I would call it the North American diet because we're up here in Canada, but it seems like medication is on the rise. We have have obesity is an issue now. Child obesity is, is an issue. Can you see one or, or two? Can we narrow that down to issues around the diet? There are lots and lots of issues uh, around diet, and they're all connected with one another, so it's hard to single one out. But I guess if I had one thing that I could teach the North American population or the world population for that matter, it would be that larger portions have more calories. Okay, so portion sizes is, is a big issue? Well, it is if you're concerned about obesity. 
And how about sugar consumption? Like sugar, sugar seems to be in just about everything. Is sugar another major concern that we could uh, well, address? It's, all, it's only a major concern if you eat too much of it, and many people do. Um, I mean, sugar is not poison. It's fuel for the brain. We need a certain amount of carbohydrate every day to keep our brains functioning. Um, but people eat much more sugar than is necessary or good for them, and that's because we love the taste of sweet things. I love the taste of sweet things. Uh, I think sugar is wonderful. It does marvelous things for all kinds of foods, but I, you have to be careful not to take in too much of it. Absolutely, and that probably has a lot to do with portion control as well. It does indeed. So what do you think the biggest issue is around portion control? Were we not taught how to eat proper or how to eat proper sizes or we're not eating enough throughout the day? Well, the food industry started making portions larger in the early 1980s when there was an enormous surplus of food and in order to sell that food uh, companies discovered that they could make larger portions and make a terrific profit on them because the cost of the basic food ingredients is quite low and the cost of everything else about putting a food in a package is higher. And once that happened, people started taking in more calories without realizing it. It's not intuitively obvious that larger portions have more calories. I mean, you kind of laugh when you hear somebody say something like that. But in fact, people don't realize how many more calories there are in um, larger size portions. And I know this because we gave a beginning nutrition class of a quiz and asked them how many calories were in an 8-ounce soft drink and how many were in a 64-ounce soft drink. And the, we, ex, we didn't expect people to know how many calories were in the 8-ounce soft drink, but we certainly expected them to multiply by 8 for the larger one. But in fact, the average multiplier was 3. Wow. And when we went back to the class and said, come on, <laughs> you're not that mathematically challenged, um, the students in the class said, 800 calories in a soda is impossible. It's just not possible. I mean, they simply couldn't conceive. They had the answer, and they had the correct answer, but they didn't believe it. So did they uh, subtract? <laughs> did they subtract 500 calories to, uh, or five times so they could? Well, they put in what they thought was a reasonable number of calories for a drink of that size. And so that's the kind of thing. And people think if it comes in a container, it has 100 calories no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. And, is, and there's lots of research that bears that out. And is that and that's so that's the food industry now. Is that packaged food that we buy in the grocery store? Is that at restaurants or is it a whole group it's, of? It's all of that. It's everything. It's all of that. If you're given a very large portion of food at a restaurant, you have no idea how many calories it contains. But if it were smaller, it would have fewer. And now, is there something that we can do just by paying attention or being conscious of eating smaller meals or being more conscious of the portion control of what, you know, the industry might put in front of us? Well, we can do that as individuals, but it's very, very difficult for individuals to uh, act against an entire food system that's designed to get them to eat more food, not less. And so that's why I think regulations are useful um, and I think there could be some regulations that suggest to product manufacturers 
what the largest size of the package could be. Um, but regulations are difficult in the present political situation, but I really think that would make it a lot easier for people to eat more healthfully. And do you think that's possible, or do you think we can move towards that in any way to, to make portion controls you know, a bit easier for us? Yes, I do. Uh, I don't think right now in the United States, I don't think the political situation is set up for that, but it could change. And what about education? Is that educating the population? I know it's very difficult because everywhere you go, the portions is huge, but is there a way we can educate? I suppose we're, we're doing it now, but can we educate the masses on how to do a better job of paying attention to how much food they're eating in a city? Well, we could, but again, I think it's too difficult for individuals to deal with an entire food system on their own. We need to make it easier for people to make the healthy choice the easy choice, and that's a much better way to do it than trying to educate every single person. Okay, Marion, so one of the questions that I wanted to bring up before in my show notes here was genetically modified foods and labeling, and I guess, again, we go back to educating or, you know, having food politics make some bigger decisions for us. I'm just wondering what what your standpoint is around GMOs and food labeling. Oh, I'm for it. Um, Well, I was on the FDA Food Advisory Committee in 1994 when the American Food and Drug Administration first approved genetically modified foods. And those of us on this advisory committee who were consumer representatives told the FDA and told the other members of the committee that we thought labeling was absolutely essential. And it was essential for two reasons, three reasons, actually. Uh, The first reason was that there was, by that time, ample evidence that the public wanted genetically modified foods labeled. There had been surveys over the previous five or ten years, and every single survey showed exactly the same thing. People wanted labels on genetically modified foods. And then the second reason was that it would inspire trust in the industry, um, because if the foods weren't labeled, people would wonder what the industry was trying to hide. And the third reason was that it would inspire trust in the FDA for making a decision that was in the public interest, and that if the FDA didn't approve or didn't insist on labeling of genetically modified foods, the public would think that the FDA was in cahoots with the biotechnology industry. And, of course, all of those things have happened. The public still wants the products labeled. They do not trust the biotechnology industry, and they do not trust the FDA. Now, now why do you think that they didn't want them labeled? Oh, and there was so much industry pressure not to. And and I witnessed that. Uh, The FDA held hearings on it, and you just couldn't believe the amount of pressure that the biotechnology industry, particularly Monsanto, was putting on the FDA to not to label uh, and coming up with all of these arguments that the FDA agreed to. So if so, the FDA had a difficult time with bigger, big organizations. However, the people wanted them labeled, so they had to find how would that work? They had to find a happy medium. They had to make the big, bigger companies happy and not not the people. Or well, that's what happened. 
Um, so the decision was in favor of the biotechnology industry. The biotechnology industry thought that if genetically modified foods were labeled, nobody would buy them. And they're still talking about how it's like putting a skull and crossbones on the product. But there's, again, ample evidence that labeling of genetically modified foods does not affect consumer behavior if the product is priced appropriately and if people want to buy the product. And that was shown by genetically labeled uh, tomato sauce in Great Britain in the um, late 1990s. And it's been shown in other places where the foods have been labeled. People still buy them. Some people don't, but a lot of people still do. Um, So I I thought the whole thing was really a serious mistake for the industry. The the big surprise that I've had is that it took 20 years to get to this point. So you were dealing with that right at the beginning, and we're still talking about it today. We're still talking about it today, and except that the politics of it have gotten much rougher. So that one state in the United States, Vermont, has passed a labeling law, and there are other states that are considering them, and the situation has gotten so threatening that the industry has gone to Congress and said, we want to write our own labeling law. Why are the bigger companies or industries, organizations worried if there has proven research that public will still buy products if they're labeled? Well, I can only attribute it to industry arrogance and paranoia, but I don't really know. I'm not party to those discussions. As I said, I thought they were making a really serious mistake. Now that we're getting closer, it seems like they're getting closer to labeling, is there, is there any benefits for the public to, under, to know more about their food? Do we see trust coming back now more in the FDA? Or? Well, we don't have it yet. But it's getting closer. It hasn't, hap- it hasn't happened yet, so it's hard to know. Right. So is Vermont the only, um, the only state that's going to change that right now? Well, right now, it's the only state that has passed a labeling law, and that law is now in courts because the, in the courts because the industry has sued the state um, to get rid of the law. And so this is going to take a long time to play out. In the big scheme of things, is that really going to make a difference, I guess, at the end of the day of, of paying more attention to living a healthier lifestyle and uh, having smaller portions and, and living, eating healthier? Well, I don't know what the relationship within the, you know, between those things is, but I think it's evidence that there's increasing interest in where c- food comes from and how it's produced. And the food companies are going to have to respond to that interest. And, and do you think that the, um, the public, the people are being more educated about food, where it comes from, what's going in it now, now than be before? Well, some are and some aren't. Depends on who you are. <laughs> That's right. All right, Marion. So there's a number of things you're doing. I know you're you have several books out there, and you have a website, and there's uh, different ways to get a hold of you. What are you doing now uh, that we can read and pay attention to and follow? Well, I have a blog that I uh, post something to almost every day. It's at foodpolitics.com, um, and I have a Twitter feed at Marion Nessel. And I'm pretty active on both of those, so my work can be followed that way. And I have a new book coming out in October this year called Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. Um, And I'll be writing about that book as 
Uh, as soon as I get the cover, which, <laughs> hasn't, which hasn't been done yet. So what is that based on? Can you share with us yet? The soda industry and how food advocacy around health issues has gotten people in the United States to be drinking a lot less soda than they used to. So that's why the subtitle is taking on big soda and winning, because people are drinking less sugary beverages. It's being published by Oxford University Press, and I hope when the book comes out in October, it'll be widely available. <laughs> okay. And At th your local bookstore. That'd be, that'd be wonderful. And then just lastly here, uh, one, which one of your books was, I, saw, I was just doing some research and I saw one of your books was on, rated one of the top health and wellness books in, on Amazon? Oh, I think four or five of them have gotten prizes and have won honors. Oh. Um, but the first book was Food Politics, and that's, um, you know, that's probably the book for which I'm best known. But What to Eat, which came out a few years later, um, which is a book for people who are interested in food issues um, also okay. got, that, got that kind of attention. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they've... They've done well. Okay, Marion. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to put together um, a post. All the show notes are going to go together so we can link back to your website and your books and so find some more information on you. I just want to thank you for sharing some of your time with us and information and giving our listeners a chance to meet you and what you're about. Oh, my pleasure. Set deep in the majestic foothills, the Sundry Golf Club boasts stunning views of the Red Deer River and the Rocky Mountains. Along Sundry's recently restored 18-hole course, you'll enjoy a haven of flourishing trees, exquisite water features, rolling greens, and a fair challenge to all golfers with improved, more forgiving fairways. We invite you to discover why this spectacular course is a must-play for all levels, a true golfer's paradise. Call the book your tee time today at 403 6 all right, so that's going to wrap things up for this edition of Exploring Mind and Body. Once again, thank you so much for being here and for checking out the show. I want to thank Marion Nessel for coming on as well. I know she's super busy and has a lot going on. So thank you, Marion, for coming on and sharing some of your information with us. All these are going to be in the show notes. So you can check out exploringmindandbody.com slash foodpolitics. And then you can check out foodpolitics.com as well for more information on Marion and what she's doing and what she's talking about. And we're also excited about her new book coming out as well. I want to thank Jameson Brown for edits. And that's it. That's all I got. I'm out of here. We'll catch you on the next one. As always, I'm your host, Drew Tadia, in health and fitness for better work. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Exploring Mind and Body with True Form Life's Drew Tadia, fitness expert. To find out more about the show, Drew Tadia, or to listen to past shows, visit exploringmindandbody.com. Exploring Mind and Body with True Form Life's Drew Tadia would not be possible without the help of GDK Gravel and Sand. GDK Gravel and Sand, now offering all products in half and one yard bags. Give them a call today for more information. 1-877-335-2091.